your Bibles, turn to 1 Kings chapter 3. 1 Kings chapter 3. I failed to look up the page number in your pew Bibles. But 1 Kings chapter 3 is just before 2 Kings. So if you find 2 Kings, go left, right? Um, but we, we, we began our study of the biography of Solomon last week. And you remember that in chapter 1 of 1 Kings uh, is the plan of succession for Solomon. Chapter 2 was what we saw last week was Solomon uh, uh, securing his, his, uh, his rule. And really the story of Solomon begins here. It really begins here uh, in chapter 3. And this is perhaps the most famous story of, of the Solomon narrative uh, that most people will know. Due to the link, we'll read the first few verses, but we'll look at the entire chapter. With that, if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. The writer of 1 Kings writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, verse 1, Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the time for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, walked in the statues of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high, high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. You have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in the place of David, my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your, your great people? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we always ask for the same thing. You would open our hearts, we would see your word. Our mind, we'd understand it. Our eyes, we'd see your, your kingdom. Our ears, we would hear and heed your word. Our hands and our feet, that we will go in obedience to Christ. Here, uh, Solomon asks for the very thing that we so sorely need. Divine wisdom, and divine wisdom rooted in the resurrected Christ. Give us this wisdom, and give us what Solomon has. May I decrease so you can increase. Name your son, we pray. Amen. Be seated. Years ago, there was a football player at a school who wasn't the smartest cat in the world, but he, he, he certainly tried hard at school. But his plan was, was to take mostly easy classes. And some of his friends told him that if he took New Testament survey class, that there would be no assignments, no tests, no readings, nothing except for the final. In fact, they said, I can already tell you what the final is going to be. Uh, it's the same final the professor has given for 25 years. It is an essay you will write on describing the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. And so Meathead thought that was a, a good idea, so he took the class, he signed up, he ignored everything the professor said, but all he did was he studied for that final. He was going to nail that final, to know and to understand deeply the missionary journeys of Paul. 
apparently word had gotten out that this is what the professor did. And, and as the semester went on and people started to zone out, the final finally came. And so everyone got, got out their, their paper and their pencils. They're ready to go. And they got their final. And for the first time in a quarter of a century, the question on the final was difference. This time, the question was, critique the Sermon on the Mount preached by Jesus. One by one, students took their paper, turned it in, blank. Except for Meathead. Meathead sat down, took out his pencil, and he began to write. And he wrote, and he wrote, and he wrote, and he wrote. One hour went by, two hours went by, and Meathead was still writing. Finally, after three hours, he turned in his paper. And he was the only student in class to get an A. Professor was excited to see what this football player wrote. And so he grabbed his, his final, opened it up, and there it was. This is how it began. Who am I to criticize the Sermon on the Mount? Instead, let me tell you about the missionary journeys of Paul. <laughs> well, I think Meathead had discovered wisdom. In a test about knowledge, he demonstrated wisdom. He didn't write about what he didn't know, but he did write about what he did know, even if that isn't what the professor wanted to know that he knew. He still gave him everything he knew about the Apostle Paul. This chapter is one of the seminal texts when it comes to the issue of wisdom. And in fact, as we'll see in our study of Solomon, what the writer of 1 Kings is, is getting at is to show not just that Solomon was wise, but what that wise leadership looked like. And as we'll see, it, it'll unfold for us. And it is all really introduced for us here in chapter 3. As we said earlier, the story of Solomon really begins here. This is the beginning of his rule and reign as a king. Notice how it starts in the first three verses with wisdom announced. What we get here is a summary statement that is foreshadowing of what is to come. And, and, and although this is the most debated part of this chapter, it, it does give us an idea of, of what to anticipate. You'll notice here that, that, that it, is, uh, it is anticipating that Solomon is going to lead with great wisdom. In fact, the, the climax of Solomon's wisdom actually comes in the next chapter. In chapter 4, it says, God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure, the breadth of mind like the sand of the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs. His songs were 1,005. People of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. That journey begins here. Now, I want you to notice what we get in these first three verses because this is, in essence, what is going to follow for the next eight chapters. Three areas of wisdom in Solomon's rule. The first is political wisdom. You see it there in verse 1. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of, of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David, that is Jerusalem. Now, scholars can debate the nature of this relationship. It'll, we'll return back to it uh, in a later chapter, no doubt. But, but I think we know enough about history to know that marriages, political marriages, were for political reasons. 
For example, whenever Henry VII, the new king of England, uh, uh, had his daughter Margaret marry King James IV of Scotland, he didn't do it because he thought King James IV of Scotland was a noble man. He did it because Scotland was naturally allied with France, who was naturally at war constantly with England. And the last thing King Henry VII need in securing his throne was war with France to the south and east and war with Scotland in the north. So if he can just keep Scotland happy, a, a marriage alliance like this could be one of the ways of doing that. And that seems to be what Solomon has in mind here. It is worth noting the irony that it is Pharaoh who must give up his daughter to the descendant of Egyptian Jewish slaves. I do think that is important in the text. Here are Jewish slaves of Egypt. He is now having to enter an alliance where it shows the power and influence of, of Israel, this nation of former slaves. We see not only political wisdom, what about economic wisdom? It's in there in the verse 1, right? He, he brings Pharaoh's daughter to the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. Notice here there, there are three things, a palace, a temple, and a wall. Now, I don't know much about construction, but one thing I do know is that construction is very expensive. So much so that such public works are a matter of government involvement. If we want to build in a new road, then that is going to be something government's going to have to raise the funds for. Right? And, and, and as we'll see in the rest of the story, really beginning in chapters 4 and 5, I believe, is, is the building of the temple, the building of Solomon's palace, the wall and everything were really expensive and demonstrated the economic advantages and advances of Israel. Uh, uh, cedar from Lebanon, gold from around the place, laborers are coming in. And so much so that when, when Solomon was done with the temple, people marveled around the nations of it. And you may recall that after it was destroyed by the Babylonians, 70 years later, Israel returns and they rebuild a temple. Those who were old enough to remember Solomon's temple and Zerubbabel's temple were quite disappointed. This second building pales in comparison to the first's. So we see the economic wisdom of Solomon. Thirdly, we see the religious wisdom of Solomon. That's there in verses 2 and 3. There's some debate regarding this reference to high places, but the text wants the reader to ultimately see this as a positive. Despite not having a temple, Solomon led Israel by action and leadership to worship Yahweh. And this is contrasted with Saul, who arguably was not a worshiper of Yahweh. So there you have Solomon's wisdom, politically, economically, and religiously. But how did he receive such wisdom? He didn't wake up one day and say, I have a plan, right? And if you elect me king, we, we will institute this plan and it happen to work. Rather, he receives a wisdom from God. And the story of that begins in verse 4. So we see wisdom announced. We see, secondly, wisdom asked in verses 4 to 10. Part of what we read, Solomon's commitment to the Lord is summarized there in verse 3 and 4. He loved the Lord. He, he walked in the statues of King David, and he sacrificed and made many offerings. The amount of offerings he offered are quite astounding, all from a heart of worship and obedience. Well, we see there in verse 5, one day while he was in Gibeon, which is where he would gather because there was no temple in Israel yet, he would go to Gibeon, not too far from Jerusalem, to make his sacrifices. And there in a dream, God appears to Solomon and asks him an inviting question. If I could give you anything in the world, what would you want? 
And that naturally got me thinking, what would we ask? What would you ask if you could have anything in the world? Most of us may say something like money or fame or better health or something like that. I was actually thinking that that is an interesting question. What would we ask? But we almost kind of know what, that, what the answer would be. There's an entire foundation that we all like, like and it's called Make-A-Wish Foundation, that, that blesses particularly little kids with terminal illnesses, um, usually, that, that they say, the, the little boy or girl, if you can have anything you know, we, we're going to work to make it possible. And, and my favorite example of this, is some of y'all may remember in San Francisco, Bat Kid. And they did a whole documentary about it. The kid wanted to be Batman and save the city for one day. So they got a little Batmobile. The mayor called him up. Everyone came out. I think he arrested the Joker and the Penguin and all that sort of stuff. He's just a little boy, dressed up as Batman, hanging out with a bigger version of Batman, you know. Uh, I'm sure he talked with the, the growling voice and everything and, and all that. But if you go to their website, you'll find that most requests are in a, a, most of them are in a series of categories. To be someone, to meet someone, to go somewhere is usually what they get. Well, you'll notice that Solomon's answer to that question begins with a humble attitude. First of all, he confesses a humble need in verse 6. Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness and in unrightness of heart towards you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. Notice he is not saying he's a six-year-old. What he's saying is, is that his wisdom and his ability to lead well is that of a child. I'm willing to bet that for most of us, we, are, we take our ambitions and we, we imagine if I had that job or that role or that opportunity, X, Y, and Z, and we act like if we were in, that, in those shoes, it would be easy. If I were director of my department, if I were the boss of my business, if, if I were in charge of X, Y, and Z, then, then everything would just run smoothly. And then we finally get the job. Then we finally get what it is that we want. And what happens? Gulp. This is a lot harder when you're doing it than when you're just complaining about who's doing it. Like everyone has had this experience. I remember the first time I became youth pastor, it hit me. I got students I've got to lead. That is scary. Let me keep a pastor. Like, I got, I got, I got, I, I got, I was going to be joking. I've got, I've got uh, uh, members of this church that I'm responsible for and will stand in judgment over. When I became a husband, I, th I thought, well, I've got real responsibility here. You can be, become a father. I've got kids now and I don't know what I'm doing, right? You moms, you make it look easy. Us dads, I don't know why they're crying. Right? I have no idea. And once you get the thing you wanted, you realize just, just how inadequate you are for that. Here is Solomon. He says, he says that you've, you've appointed me to this, and I'm grateful for it. I have no idea what I'm doing. You see that humble need he expresses. And not just that, he, he ha makes a humble request there in verse 9 where he asks for wisdom. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind in, to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. By the way, the phrase good and evil is the same phrase you'll find in Genesis chapter 2 and 3 that describes the tree of knowledge. What Solomon is saying here is, in my role of leadership, I don't want to be like them. 
I don't want to think that knowledge will replace wisdom. Rather, I want the tree of life, which is your wisdom given to me on your timetable. I don't want to take this tree, give me the tree of life. It's not accidental, the language that that is there. And so he, he makes a humble need. He makes a humble request. You can see here that wisdom is no more complicated than knowing the difference between good and evil. In fact, the Bible connects children who don't know good and bad. This is why we have an age of consent today, is that children can't make those sort of decisions. Children are foolish because they don't know. Parents are therefore entrusted to give them wisdom as they train their children. Solomon knows that he does not have the wisdom to lead well. Power is insufficient for leadership. You must also have wisdom. So he asks for wisdom. Secondly, notice we have wisdom accepted, verses 10 to 15. We see there in verse 10, God is pleased. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked. And God said to him, because you have asked this and not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I am now going to do according to your word. God responds to his prayer, his request by granting him wisdom in abundance. We could go back to the summary statement in chapter four. It is an overwhelming abundance of thousands of Proverbs, thousands of songs. The people marveled at. But, but you need to know that, that he gives him wisdom and he gives him abundance. And that order is important. Most people want abundance, but they want to bypass the wisdom. They just want. I do believe that Solomon's blessings were divinely given and ordered. I believe that. I also believe that Solomon's blessings were the result of wise leadership. Right? It's, 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 I believe that, that God can take as an impossible situation and make it possible. When Isaac was, was in the promised land during the time of the famine, God blessed his crops. That is miraculous. God blessed him miraculously. At the same time, we can see that through wise decision-making, good things happen. For example, you want to get out of debt? Stop spending so much money, right? You see how that works, right? If you're wanting financial abundance, let, let your income trump your outcome, right? That's wisdom. It's common sense, but that's wisdom, right? Now, you laugh, but we are a country with a $30 trillion deficit, right? I mean, we are run by fools and a nation of fools, right? And I think, therefore, that Solomon's practical wisdom resulted in his abundance, he made wise decisions, and as a result, came such abundance. You need to notice here in verse 14, there is a catch. If you will walk in my ways, God says, keeping my statutes and commandments, as your father David walked, I will lengthen your days. I will bless you in the land of promise. Right? All this is taken from the Exodus narrative. So you see that, that, that his blessings are tied to wisdom. What is the source of wisdom for Solomon? Well, go back up to verse 3. Solomon loved the Lord. He walked in the statues of his father David, and he worshipped him. If you want long life, abundance, blessing, and wisdom, you will love the Lord. You will obey his will. You will worship him in spirit and truth. Well, let us find a look at wisdom authenticated. 
I'm really proud of that all of this is alliterated, and I'm not sure you guys appreciate it as much as I do. All of these start with wisdom and an A. That's impressive. I went to school for eight years to do that. Be impressed. Wisdom authenticated. Well, this is the part of the chapter that most of us know best. Immediately, what the narrator does is saying, okay, Solomon has received wisdom for God. Let me show you what it looks like in a practical, everyday situation. The king would also serve as a type of judge. This goes all the way up through the Roman period. Remember, Paul appeals to Caesar in the book of Acts. And so what he has here is a case where foolishness triumphs. And Solomon's wisdom cuts through it all. So notice here that in verse 16, two, prost- two harlots stand before the king. What a contrast. You have two harlots here and the king there. Foolishness, wisdom. Right? And, and the story they tell is an absolute mess. It is a story of tragedy. It is, it is just an awful story that is part of reality. And Solomon has to figure out in his leadership what to do with it. The story is pretty simple. There are two harlots. They have, they have a, a baby. Uh, uh, each of them have a baby roughly the same time. And they're taking care of the, the, the baby as harlots. And one night after everything goes on and everything, and they, they put their baby to bed and they lay down next to their baby. One harlot lays over her child and the child suffocates. It's a tragic situation. And we can imply certain things about what caused that, but it is tragic nonetheless. So what does that harlot do when she discovers that her baby is now deceased? She goes over to the other harlot, steals that baby, and claims the child for herself. Now they stand before the Supreme Court wanting to know who gets to keep the baby. This is all a mess, an absolute mess. We shouldn't be in this situation. We shouldn't need harlots. We shouldn't endanger children. And remember, Solomon can't do the things that we can do. There's no DNA testing. There's no eyewitnesses. You can't go find the father and judge by looks. You can't do any of that. What you have here is a she said, she said situation. So what is Solomon going to do? In wisdom, Solomon understands human nature. And he understands that a good mother would sacrifice herself for the good of her children. When I went to Africa on a mission trip and I was in seminary, uh, we did a, a time of orientation with the missionaries. And, and one of the things that the missionaries told us is you need to be careful. A lot of the moms here, because poverty and starvation are so serious, not to mention the rise of AIDS and everything else, is that they would gladly give you their child. Some of you may remember that when we left Afghanistan, that there were mothers who were handing their babies to soldiers, not because they don't love their children. It's because the nature of motherly love is to say that I would rather die and I would rather be alone and just to know my child has a better chance. And so Solomon understands that about human nature. One of these women, it will be motivated by envy. If I can't have a child, she can't have a child. Another, because of her motherly instinct, would rather give up her child than, than, than to lose the child to death. And so what does Solomon famously do? You see it there in verses 23 to 27. He says, grab a sword, cut the child in half. Barbaric, yes, but Solomon's getting to a point. And immediately, the mother who was not the mother, the harlot that was not the mother, says, fine by me. I'd rather we both not have our child than for her to have one. Sounds like Rachel and Leah, by the way. Whereas the real mother, she says, you know what? 
I just want my baby to have a chance. And through that, Solomon wisely sees and discovers who the real mother is. You can, if you want to see it in the text, verse 27, I know we've done a lot of skipping. The king answered and said, give the living child to the first woman and by no means put him to death. She is his mother. And here's the summary. All Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered. They stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. Notice, God's wisdom results in justice. It results in the recovering of shalom, the peace of Eden. Well, let us look, before we leave, wisdom applied. What do, what do we do with this? What are some points I think we need to take home here? Three things, real quickly. First of all, we need to seek wisdom. The premise of the story is twofold. First, to demonstrate that Solomon ruled with wisdom. That's very evident in the opening three verses and the last narrative. Secondly, it is to demonstrate how Solomon attained that wisdom. And he obtained it by seeking it out. We hear nothing of Solomon's education in this chapter. I'm not sure we hear anything of it in the rest of his story. I don't know much about it. I assume he was well-educated growing up in the, uh, in, 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 in the um, uh, royal palace. I'm sure he was well-educated. But his education is not what made him wise. His devotion to God is what made him wise. Despite centuries of evidence, humans still connect knowledge and wisdom. They are not synonymous. All you have to do is follow politics to know that, that every political leader surrounds himself with well-educated, smart people who can use words that you and I couldn't spell if we tried. Yet they're maddeningly foolish. Why? Because one does not guarantee the other. I would argue that knowledge does not necessarily lead to wisdom, but wisdom will lead to knowledge. Knowledge, for example, will tell you that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom, on the other hand, will tell you it doesn't belong in a fruit salad. Whereas others have said knowledge tells you what to say. Wisdom will tell you when to say it or not say it at all. In the garden, the forbidden tree offered knowledge of good and evil, but not the wisdom to choose one over the other. So we have the decay of human society. As always, I think C.S. Lewis is most helpful here. He wrote an essay. It's in the Abolition of Man book, if you're interested. But the essay is called Men Without Chests. It's a fantastic essay. Everyone should read it and then read it again. And his, his beef is with modern education, although it's, it's applied beyond that. His, what he does is he takes man and he breaks him into three parts. The head is knowledge. The, the chest, the heart, is morality. The stomach is passions. And he says what you have in modern society is that education will fill the head with knowledge and society will fill the stomach with passions. But what we've done in secular society, we've removed the chest. We've removed the heart. And so what we have are smart people with passions, but without the, 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 the morality, the self-control, and the integrity to know what to do with the knowledge, to know what to do with the passions. Knowledge is good. Passions and ambitions and everything else are good. But without the chest, you, none of this is going to work out. And so he, he said that the head rules the belly through the chest. I think that's helpful. His most famous paragraph says, quote, I think I have it up here. And all the time, such as the comedy of our situation, by that he means tragedy, 
we continue to clamor for those very qualities we are rendering impossible. You can hardly open a periodical, magazine, uh, uh, social media by our standards today, without coming across the statement that what our civilization needs is more drive, dynamism, self-sacrifice, creativity. In a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ but demand the function. We make men without chess and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the guiltings be fruitful. Man, he's right, isn't he? He's right. Wisdom is something that must be sought out. And it isn't enough to feed passions and to read books. Rather, we must seek wisdom. Wisdom isn't learned through lectures and must be sought out, cultivated, and grown. Knowledge is good, but insufficient alone. Secondly, we must savor wisdom. How can one find wisdom if they did not know where to search? My advice is to look at Solomon. His journey towards wisdom began with faith. His faith was deep and abiding. He genuinely loved the Lord with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. This is why we say that divine wisdom begins with the divine. If you were wise, you would understand that, right? Divine wisdom begins with the divine. You will find wisdom in Scripture. You will find it in the gospel. You will find it among fellow believers. And this is the lifelong journey that produces wisdom over time if we know where to look for it. You will not find it on social media. I dare you. Actually, that's what most of us are doing. Let, let, let me prove this for you. Many of you all know the work I do at the Capitol. Is, is, let's say a leading political figure in our state puts a picture of the state of Kentucky and his sunsets. And the caption is, my old Kentucky home. Isn't it beautiful? Something like that. That is innocent. Read the comments. Will you find wisdom there? No. Pick any YouTube video you want. Read the comments. Is there wisdom to be found there? Scroll through your, your Facebook wall. Any wisdom there? No. It is found only in the one who is himself greater than Solomon. And savor the wisdom of Christ, who gives us wisdom liberally, James tells us, if we ask. Thirdly, we need to share wisdom. Godly wisdom must be shared. Look at Solomon here in leading with wisdom and sharing it through his Proverbs. Throughout the early chapters of Proverbs, we'll actually look at Proverbs 8, Lord willing, this evening. Solomon speaks as a father to a son. And, and it concludes with the final poem of a father to a son. Well, because wisdom must be passed on generation to generation. Divine wisdom is not to be privatized. It must be shared. And I believe this is the beauty of the local church in the kingdom of God. The reason that we have people of all ages is that together, under the banner of the gospel of Jesus Christ, unified in the faith as revealed in Scripture, we can share the wisdom God has given us through the years. It is my prayer that you, as an adult, can look back and say, I am who I am, yes, because of mom and dad, yes, because of all this, but because of my Sunday school teacher when I was in fifth grade, because of my youth pastor when I was a junior in high school. Why? Because wisdom is something that has to be shared. As we seek the scriptures, we share its message. <laughs> Therefore, let me encourage you to invest in one another. Encourage one another. 
exhort with one another, and share the wisdom of the Lord with one another. Seek it, savor it, share it. What this world needs is the gospel of Jesus. And with the gospel will come the wisdom of God. Therefore, the mission we have in the Great Commission is of vital importance. It is why on the one hand we are seeking to plant a church in a border community. It is why we conclude to send a missionary overseas. Where you will find the message of Jesus. The one who is greater than Solomon you will find the wisdom of God in the kingdom of God. If you have never received the hope of Jesus, I ask that you come to the cross. It will be the wisest thing you ever do. Will you come, lay down your sin, lay down your shame, lay down your guilt, and put on the righteousness of Christ and live by His wisdom. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would be so kind.